Hello and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core, on location at Playful Learning. I'm Mike, imposter scene, Jeremy Incarnate, man with the microphone, and I'm joined by... Dr. Elliot Spaeth. And Elliot, what brings you to the Playful Learning Conference, other than your keynote, which you just delivered? Oh, I love the Playful Learning Conference. I would actually say it is the only conference that I've ever enjoyed and... If given my way, I would probably only go to this conference in future because it is a place where I can feel really safe to be myself. And there aren't that many places where I feel that. I feel that this is the first one I've ever really wanted to go to. Is there any particular session that you're really looking forward to, apart from the one I think we're both currently missing on the uh, the exquisite corpse thing, which sounds amazing? Well, I'll tell you, I have been so caught up with trying to get my talk ready that I haven't had a proper look at the program. So that is all ahead of me. But the one that we are missing at the moment did sound very exciting. Yeah, I think we're going to go to that just uh, after after this bit, which is definitely being recorded in the second order. Um, and how do you feel now that you've got your keynote done? Really relieved and excited. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dr. Elliot Faith has done uh, the keynote that opened the conference. Uh, and it's brilliant. It's great. Just really thought-provoking. Uh, which I know is kind of like a very sort of, actually, no, really thought-provoking is such a generic thing to say, but it genuinely was. I've got like two pages of notes here. So I guess just to kind of, Donna, re-summarize the intro of your keynote for you, but it sort of took us through an interesting journey of asking, A, what is playfulness, or defining playfulness, and looking at it as being a, a questioning or a sort of, you know, moving around an amorphous look at the rules as we see them then looking at the rules where they come from rules themselves often being derived from assumptions um and then uh sorry my notes are this is my handwriting by the way i have no idea i love it how i expected to um to read this um, and how this can create obstacle courses um that only really work for ideal inverted commas bunny ears students so and then also oh, and then prompted us to to examine our own rules so Kind of, I guess, thinking on that, and sort of for the people who didn't have the pleasure of your keynote and might want just kind of like you know some of the uh, some of the the highlights, some of the top tips from you. How can educators play fair by throwing out the rules? That is indeed the question, and I think it's often a disappointment to people that I don't have a really neat set of rules that will work <laughs> in all contexts. Because wouldn't that be great? But although by definition, having a neat set of rules would already be an antithesis of what you're trying to do. Absolutely. That is indeed the core challenge of this kind of thing. I think for me, the core is to be compassionate both to yourself and to others. So part of it is a mindset thing. I would say that's for me probably the biggest thing is having the attitude of being open to learning about how your teaching might be being experienced by different people in different ways doesn't mean you've done something wrong just means you might not have thought about how that was going to go down so that is one thing i think trying to design your teaching to be inherently flexible is really good which i'm aware sounds pretty nebulous so a framework that can be useful for considering that is something called universal design for learning, which refers to the idea of rather than only making changes because maybe you've heard that somebody's requested a specific reasonable adjustment for a disability, you can do that too. 
but also trying to think proactively about how you can make things welcoming for as many people as possible, rather than thinking, well, no, it really does have to be done this way. The challenge, of course, is how do we do that without relying on that imagined or implied student we have in our heads based on our own experiences, how we've seen things happen. And I think the best thing that we can really do is try and ask our students. So rather than maybe singling out the ones that you notice might be struggling, something you can do is use a little informal questionnaire, something like Mentimeter or Microsoft Forms at the beginning, just asking people what their various preferences are. You can keep it anonymous if you like, and you can get a really good sense for whether people tend to prefer to work in groups or by themselves, whether people really like being able to verbalize their thoughts and answer questions, or whether people would really rather listen. And then you can use that to inform the methods that you use. Another option is just to provide alternatives in situations where people might not always be comfortable or thrive in the environment you're setting out. So for example, if usually you might say, hey, let's discuss this in groups, you can also say, or if you, could pref if you would prefer, just reflect on this by yourself. You can take some notes if you like, you don't need to. And that's encouraging that level of active thinking, which is I think what we really talk about to me when we're talking about active learning, because it centers it on what the student's experiencing, whether they're active and not whether you can tell that they're being active. <laughs> and that's the core to me, I think. Is this, uh, this is getting back to something you mentioned earlier, a mild distaste for assessment. <laughs> yes, I'm not the biggest fan, uh, to put it mildly. I suppose the, uh, the, the issue with uh, assessing criticality as an approach is that, what are you requesting? You request, uh, are you assessing the, uh, the modal ability to be critical? Are you assessing actual critical thinking, knowledge of the tool sets available? It's, uh, it's a tricky one, isn't in it? In my opinion, indeed, if we, if we assess critical thinking, to me, it's often it ends up assessing people's ability to apply an existing framework to being critical mm. and not necessarily criticizing criticizing or not necessarily being critical of the framework itself. Yeah, sort of the metacriticality. Right. So it's like we're asking people to conform in their criticality. Which is just a wonderful recursive staircase to fall down. Yes, it's very Escher-like, isn't it? I'm <laughs> not sure how I feel about it. Or like, did you ever play um, Mario 64 where you, if you haven't got enough progress yet, you try and go up a staircase and it's just infinite stairs mm. with no end. I love that. I absolutely love that. So thinking as well, so thinking just kind of uh, to some of the questions that came afterwards uh, made me think about what you were saying there about uh, responsiveness to, to being uh, res responsive and um, observing the people that you're teaching. People often gravitate towards absolutism and rules because it gives them a sense of security and it gives them a sense of control over uh, a situation, a sense of, you know, being able, being able to do something, you know, the problem with, uh, I suppose, to a lot of people being responsive and, you know, almost being, making up on, not making up as you go along, but responding to things on the fly is that it is quite scary it's essentially improvisational it's not something you can necessarily plan for you can have a metacognitive toolkit that enables you to do it but it's still a little bit bum squeaky uh, a bit like this interview actually which i feel like i wrote a lot of notes for and it's just completely gone this is brilliant i'm delighted to hear yeah. that so how would you express i mean i know you kind of answered this a little bit in the thing but i guess i just want to go down your thought train a little bit further with this how do you express the tension between 
the need people have for absolutism and the benefits of that flexibility and responsiveness? For me, the key is to think about it from an emotional perspective, not that there's a way we should do it and if we don't do it that way, we're wrong. So, for example, somebody that likes absolutism, that's not wrong. It's extremely understandable. I personally don't love uncertainty. And taking a small side note to my PhD, uh, which was on anxiety disorders, finding uncertainty difficult is a very common thing for people who are anxious, autistic people, lots of different reasons. It makes sense. Now I've gone off on a tangent. My point is, I think when we talk about learning and teaching, we don't think about emotions as nearly as much as we should do. And valid emotions. Because to me, if we really want to create change, we need to figure out why. And to me, the why is often feelings. And actually, I think even just surfacing that itself is the first step. Something I try and model with my students who are lecturers in themselves is that it's okay to be wrong. And what I tend to say to people is, I don't think students would mind if you were wrong, as long as you were respectful to them. If you'd been really quite mean to them beforehand and then you turned out to be wrong, it might not go very well for you, but you've got other issues going on there. But modeling that doing something well, okay, let's try that again. Can I, can I, I think I can get where you're coming to on this yeah but i'm not answering the right question i don't think oh no but i love the question you are answering which is that the why is feelings and the how is empathy to a degree and that by potentially creating Mm. an environment where empathy goes one way you're modeling it the other way i love that okay yeah or have i or have i gone diagonal no i love it that's kind of where i was going with it i mean the thing i wanted to talk about was universal compassion in a way i think when we're teaching or in any situation, it can be a survival mechanism to say, ah, well, those students are hard to reach, for example, so I don't really need to think about those. You know, those students, well, they they should have just read the course handbook, so I don't need to think with empathy or compassion about their situation. And, you know, that absolves me of having to do anything. But it's also that empathy to oneself. And I feel like for me to say, oh, well, it's unacceptable for lecturers to do things this way, unless they're intentionally being cruel, disrespectful, etc. To me, that would be just really inauthentic of me, considering my point is that we all experience and feel things differently, and that is really important and matters. Tension is a really big deal. I think for me, it's often tied up in a broader idea of moving from the idea of lecturer, educator, whatever, as producer, transmitter of knowledge. Sage on the stage. Sage on the stage. It rhymes and everything. Love it. Um, shout out to all you Final Fantasy fourteen players who are going to get the sage reference right there. <laughs> Moving from that towards somebody that facilitates other people's understanding of knowledge. And I think because it's often built up in that, like, yes, it is absolutely scary and horrifying, but it is part of quite a transformation. The thing that I think comes in additionally when it comes to inclusion is it's a different type of fear of getting things wrong. So it's not just, oh, I'm really scared that they'll ask a question I don't know the answer to, which is a big one, I think, understandable, especially because we're generally, it's a lot of uh, imposter syndrome in academia because of some pretty toxic systems in place. I like, to say it's um, 
get a whole bunch of people that are used to succeeding, put them in an environment where there's a million ways to fail and no clear way to succeed. And this is what you get. Where were you when we did our recent episode on imposter syndrome? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know, but I'll be there for the next one. Oh, brilliant. Being wrong about facts is one thing. And I, as I've said, I, to me, I think it's great to model to people. Oh, I got that wrong. This is actually it. And I've heard lecturers do this so well. They say, well, actually, this is at the cussing edge of the field, if that is in fact true. You know, I'm not saying you should make that up. Um, so that's a really good question that people still don't have. Or even saying to them, that's a really tricky one, actually. And so I don't remember right now, but I'll look it up. You're, like you were saying, you're emphasizing, uh, you might not exactly know. By talking to students about why you might be struggling with the question or why you might have gotten something wrong, you're empathizing with their experience of being a learner. You're, you're being in that place with them, which I think is a really generous thing to do, to share your struggles or vulnerabilities and say, oh, actually, this paper I've always found really tough. Brilliant. Fantastic. The challenge with inclusive learning, I think, is that there's also this idea of getting things wrong as a violent act, I suppose, not an intentionally violent act, but an act that might somehow have some sort of unintended violent effect. So we hear this when we talk about language, for example, concern about maybe accidentally using the wrong pronouns for someone. And I think concerns about that are used very genuinely, sometimes a little bit weaponized, um, but that's maybe a conversation for a different day. But the point is, and I think when I've said this, people have been quite relieved before from my perspective and all the trans people that I know, um, other trans people that I know, just to be clear, we just mind that you try. So what we find violent would not be somebody using she, her pronouns by for me by mistake or calling me my birth name by mistake. It would be refusing to use my chosen name and pronouns. And that's how I feel think about it with inclusive practice. It's not that you tried something and maybe it had an impact on someone that what would feel violent to me would be refusing to use my chosen name. Because to me it's saying, your opinions and feelings don't matter, mine do, and so I'm going to oppress you by forcing my opinions and perspective on you. From my way of thinking about things, for example, when it comes to learning and, and teaching and being inclusive, if somebody were to say, wow, that didn't really work for me, then even just saying, oh wow, I, I had no idea, thanks so much for letting me know, I'll have a think about it is a really simple thing that you can do to respond to that. And hopefully practicing that will show that it's maybe not that dangerous. Maybe it is okay. Maybe it will feel safer over time. But it probably will be pretty difficult at first. So I very much empathize with anyone that's at that point of thinking about teaching. So thinking then... If we had to kind of maybe pull that together into a neat little JPEG that you could put over a sunset with some text on it and then share on Facebook. Oh, you want the caption? No, I guess I'm just thinking of sort of pulling together some of the themes of what you've said. It's like inclusive, well, deriving from like the very top. So going from sort of the start of playfulness to inclusivity. And then think about inclusivity in education practice as educators being human, uh, being empathetic, your pedagogic pals, on the side um, and being approachable and responsive. Would you say that's a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. I think also things to keep in mind are the default or current way of doing things is not a neutral statement. 
I think people sometimes think, oh, we can't do that because that would be making a political statement or that might go wrong. But that's making an assumption that what we're currently doing is politically neutral and working for everyone. I think the thing that's difficult about engaging with the fact that there might be all these sort of rules based on assumptions that might not be quite accurate, the scary thing about all of that is realizing, God, it might be that a bunch of the things that I'm doing actually aren't working for people, which is horrifying, I think. But it's necessary to me because the alternative is still doing things that might not be working for people, mm. but just refusing to be aware of it. So it's not a choice between getting things right and getting things wrong. It's a choice between deluded certainty and aware acceptance of the unknown. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to wrap it up. It's very much the bow on top of that. That's are you wonderful. gonna are you gonna do your JPEG now? I mean, uh, can it be a cat though? Can I have a cat? A cat? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Do, I can, I can put I've cat got some that. cat pics if you like. Yeah, yeah. Fold me a cat pic. Great. Yeah, banging. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, so this is Mike uh, at Playful Learning. Uh, Elliot, where can people find you online? I am on Twitter at... My name is quite difficult to spell. It'll be in the show notes as well. That's great. It is at Elliot Spath. And I also have a hastily assembled website, which is chronicallyelliot.wordpress.com. Remember... Two L's and two T's in Elliot. The second T is for testosterone. <laughs> so we've been uh, Mike and Elliot at the Playful Learning Conference signing off. <laughs>